So, uh, we John Mark, just to say, we're delighted to have you. Yeah, it's such an honor to be here, Johnny. And um, thank you for being here. Yeah. I am not going to lie, I'm, I have building envy. Like, I, <laughs> your, your whole roof is a skylight. Yeah. That's just not fair. I just want to sit here and look up. There's a tree outside. Yeah. It's beautiful. Well, it does mean that we are uh, dependent on the outside for our temperature. And, uh, and just by way of apology, we know it's about, you know, 70 degrees Celsius in here. Um, but, you know, you just, if, you, if you're not part of this community, you're just lucky you weren't here in the winter because it was about minus 30. Uh, so we are experiencing swings of temperature, but you're doing really well with it. And uh, thank you, John. I re you're moving into a building soon yourself, so I'm sure yeah. yours isn't too shabby. But I want to begin the conversation, really, actually, by reflecting on one of the key pieces of work that you've been sort of at for the last while, which is a podcast, which I know many of uh, the folks here will have listened to. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. It's called This Cultural Moment. And I guess... I want to dig into what that's about, um, because I think there lies some of the heart of the conversation we're going to have tonight. T tell us a little bit about the, the genesis, the heart behind, the desire to make a podcast like that and what you're really driving at in it. Yeah, well, first off, you really have the lowest common denominator. So I do this little podcast with a, a friend of mine from Oz by the name of Mark Sayers, who is the brains of the operation. And I just ask questions and attempt to understand his answers for those of us on the middle of the bell curve. But Mark is really an ethnographer just in that he's a, a student of culture and um, not, not a critic in the social critic sense, but just a, a real perceptive eyes on our cultural moment and what's happening. So the podcast is really just me asking him questions and, um, and trying to just name our cultural moment. You know, we all, uh, Babette Buster, who's a famous screenwriter from Hollywood, calls human beings narrative animals. And, you know, at a neurological level, the human brain is hardwired to search for coherence and complexity. We're built to find, we're meaning-making machines. We can't live without meaning. We literally can't get out of bed. We're not like the animals that just run on pre-programmed instinct. We, ha we ask bigger questions about life, whether we suppress them or let them rise to the surface of our heart and direct how we live. We just can't help but live without that. And, um, and so I think what we're trying to do is just attempt to name what are the stories that people are living into, what's the secular story, what's the post-Christian story, and how does that stack up against the story that Jesus tells about what it means to be human and what is the good life, really the three driving questions of humanity, which is, you know, who is God, is there a God, and, and what is he or she or it or they like? Um, what does it mean to be human and what is the good life? Those are really the three great questions that every religion, every system of meaning, secular or not, basically is wrestling with those three questions. And so, yeah, we're just attempting to kind of put some language around it. By we, I mean he, when I ask <laughs> questions. Well, you, you're falsely modest there because I've listened to it and I know that there's more than that going on. But we'll leave those questions, just part of those questions, those three questions, who is God, what is meaning, and how can we find life? Was that the third one? What's the good life? What's yeah. the good life? Yep. Just part those for a minute, particularly the meaning one, because we are going to need to return to that. Yeah. But let's just begin with this cultural moment. What is this cultural moment? Describe for us, if you would, what you see. Yeah, well, I mean, like many people, we talk about post-Christian culture, which you may or may not be familiar with that language, but that's riffing off of a sociologist by the name of Philip Reef who um, is famous for, he's a Freud scholar, although he's a critic of Freud, not a fan. He's famous for a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Faith After Freud, which is several decades old now, but is still one of the most well-respected works kind of on sociology in the last half a century. 
And he's not a follower of Jesus. He's a Jewish agnostic, I believe. But he was the one who put forth this framework of what he calls first, second, and third culture, or an easier way to remember that is just pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian culture. So very simply, pre-Christian culture would be, say, Britain before Christian missionaries first came. And was that the second century, first century? It was really I'm just going to nod. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sounds right. You're the now. Anglican. You should know the answer yeah, to that question. Yeah, I should. I should, yeah. but I was sick that day But um, <laughs> Pulling a sickie. So if you imagine, you know, Britain 2,000 years ago, it's a land of tribes, it's tribal, it's based around warfare between clans, it's a land that is charged with spirituality, whether that's gods and goddesses or a form of pantheism. And then the gospel comes. So pantheism is the idea that God is in everything? Yes, yes. Yeah. So some cultures would drift more toward a god, toward a goddess, and then others more, you know, in particular indigenous peoples would drift often more toward a pantheistic yeah. kind of goddess. God is in the tree. tree god of yeah. the rock, okay. god of the field, yeah. god of the I'm God, you're, all that kind of stuff, you know? And then the gospel comes into a culture, whether it's, you know, pre-Christian Europe or somewhere else, and there begins to be a profound change, and these gods and goddesses are robbed of their power and authority that they often have over societies, and peace often comes, and order begins to come out of some of the chaos. And so, you know, there's no such thing as Christian culture. Christian's a noun, not an adjective. And at its best, culture is always a mix of Christian and pagan and or secular kind of ideology and ways of life. So the closest you would ever get would be, say, England in the Victorian era or something like that, where the default cultural currents are moving you toward God, not away from God, and toward a basic kind of Judeo-Christian ethic and not away from it. So in that, so we begin with pre-Christian culture. Yeah. We then move to... Can I call it Christian culture? I, yeah, or Christianized culture Christianized or culture. Christendom or whatever. And the point you're trying to make then is that in that culture, if you just sit in the stream, yep. you'll float gently towards something approximating Yep, even if you're not following Jesus okay. or anything like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll end up with some kind of a coherent life around You might go to church a bit because yep. that's the expected thing. And this is still the case in parts of, the, parts of America, of course. Yep. Not where I live. Not where you live. Definitely no. not where I live. But yeah, in parts of the South, yeah. Okay. And then... Yeah, and then you move eventually, or we have moved into post-Christian culture, which is, it's Nottingham, it's where I live, Portland, Oregon. And the key thing to understand is we haven't reverted back to pre-Christian culture. So it's not like hipsters in Nottingham or London are all like sacrificing goats to the mother goddess anymore or whatever. That would be illegal. Not even in my super progressive city. Nobody's like sacrificing their firstborn child to Mm -hmm. Moloch or anything like that or worshiping the wind. Like that's just not, it's not, we haven't gone backward. We're actually still on this track, but neither have we moved on. Like the, the narratives is we've moved on, we've matured past this superstition or whatever people would call religion from a secular perspective, but it's really not true. The key thing about post-Christian culture is it's a reaction against Christian culture. So it's basically the rebellious teenager moment, you know, where you criticize mom and dad and you hate them and you're angsty while you're eating all of their food and living under their mortgage, you know? It's basically that kind of a moment across, I don't mean to be demeaning, but across the West in that we're still living off of 
basically a Christian value set. I mean, the entire worldview around human rights is all rooted in Christian theology. Yeah. One of the great attempts as the world becomes more globalized, more multicultural, and becomes not the global village that everybody thought it would be, but actually becomes this like bizarre like marketplace of ideas all competing for attention and votes and legislation and money and economy, and it becomes more and more tribal and more and more chaotic and more and more conflict rather than evolving toward the kind of everybody agrees with each other kind of thing that we thought the internet would bring us all together. It apparently hasn't done that. And um, apparently we disagree about some pretty big questions in life across the world. Just look at your Twitter feed. Uh, yeah. Or any of our Twitter feeds. Yeah, exactly. So the thing about post-Christian culture is it's, it's attempting to live off of this rich Christian heritage, whether it's around human rights or justice or equality, key Western ideas that are definitely not rooted in Darwinism. I mean, for sure, they're actually the exact opposite. So I have many friends that are not followers of Jesus that are deeply good people that are pervaded by love, but often the attempts that they work at for justice or um, equality or human rights are often in spite of their secular worldview, or at least their scientific worldview, not yeah. because of it. So they're almost good people yes. in spite of that worldview. Because, because if we were to follow, let's say, Darwinian thought through to its logical conclusion, we shouldn't be preferring the other. We shouldn't be fighting oh my for social rights. No we shouldn't way. be looking at... It's eugenics. It's, right. I mean, it's Nazism. I mean, yeah. that's where the logic takes you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, therefore, what we're saying is this post-Christian culture, are we saying, is parasitic. It's sort of existing off and feeding off this thing that it emerged from. Yeah, yeah I don't know that degree. I would use the word. It may be parasitic, but more like it's an attempt to move beyond Christ or Christian. I don't, prefer, I don't like the language of Christianity, but that's fine. Move beyond. Our buddy, my friend Mark calls it, it's an attempt to live in the kingdom without the king. So it's an attempt to basically live. I mean, you have, you have this Christian idea that Jesus has begun a new humanity that is moving forward toward a glorious new future that Jesus called the kingdom of God or the new heavens and the new earth. And there's hope for that. And we live in this tension and we're like the advanced sign of that now as a community as we begin to live into Jesus' teachings and experience the life to come in this life, heaven on earth, so to speak. And then you have a parody of that in the secular idea, which is this we're kind of evolving toward the utopia that we all know is coming. And religion is actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. And once we move on from superstition, i.e. religion or spirituality, and just then we can move into this kind of beautiful utopian world of equality and justice and human rights and the internet will bring us all together. So that's the kind of mindset. And in a sense, it's really based off, again, a Christian worldview. Thomas Cahill, again, not a Christian historian, argues that the entire Western idea of progress that the West is based on, our political system is based on, economics is based on, you have to believe that things will get better or you would never vote for so-and-so or buy this thing or invest in this company, is all based on basically the story of Abraham and the Christian worldview, that Eastern culture and pre-Christian culture is simply cyclical. Everything's, you think about ancient religious rites and even most Eastern religion rites, it's about kind of the cycle of the seasons and life just goes in circles kind of thing. So this idea that human history is moving forward toward a glorious future is a Jesus idea, basically. Yeah. And the secular kind of moment we're in is attempting to de-Christianize it and do the kingdom of God without God, do utopia without being saved, an attempt to save ourselves. Yeah. And it is still very religious in a secular way. And the problem is it's just not working nearly as well as many people hoped. And that's represented, that, that myth or that... Um, yeah, well, that myth is represented in our advertising where you see, yes. you know, 
buy this product and you can have this glorious new oh, feature. Oh, because it's so easy to monetize. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and people can make money off of our confusion and yeah. what Christians would call sin. <laughs> There's yeah. lots of money to be made. Yes. Yeah. So talk then, let, let's narrow down on a word that you've used a few times already this evening, which it feels like it's a really key word. And I've got to be honest, I sort of bandy it around every so often, but I'd love you to bring some sort of clarity to it. Um, this word secular or secularism or secularity, because when we're describing the culture, the post-Christian culture in which we now are, that word seems to be particularly important. Can you yeah. say something about And that? I like that word because it's not, um, a, it's, it's not a pejorative. So secular okay. people identify as secular people. Yeah. It's not a criticism. It's and so what, honest what, is, appraisal. what is it? I mean, I think the best, I mean, the shortest definition I've ever heard is just a secular society is a society attempting to live as if there is no God. Okay. Or a secular person is a person attempting to live as if there is no God, and with no God, no spirituality, in the classic definition of the words. You know, spirituality has changed in the modern vernacular, at least where I'm from, maybe not here, but to mean more like just I love nature, or I want to have meaning in life, or I want to live for something bigger than my personal happiness, or whatever, rather than the classical definition in relationship with a spirit, whether it's the spirit of God or another spirit. Okay. And, and the trick about, you know, the secular worldview is it is in, a, in, an, in attempting to live without God, it is essentially attempting to live without meaning. Yeah. And that's the rub because human beings can't live without meaning. So, you know, um, philosophers talk about discovered meaning and developed meaning. Um, discovered meaning is meaning that's outside of yourself. So it's God, spirituality, truth with a capital T. It's transcendent. You don't make it up. It comes to you. And you either live in alignment with this truth, with this meaning, with this reality, or you don't live in, in alignment with it, and you either flourish or you, or, you, or you struggle based on how well you live in alignment with that truth, with that reality, with that meaning. And a lot of people don't like that idea because there, if, is the, if there is a meaning to life, that means we're not free to do whatever we want and thrive in the way that we want. So human beings can't live without meaning. So in a secular worldview, what we have to do is come up with developed meanings, meaning we have to come up with something to live, not just to get us out of bed in the morning, but ideally to live even beyond that and even beyond the weekend, whether that is, you know, leave the world better than you found it, or, you know, be nice, or drink beer, or he who dies with the most toys wins, or Mm -hmm. some of them are lofty, some of them are very base, some of them are more elitist and sophisticated and class-based, others are more kind of run of the street. But at that point, because we can't live without meaning, we have to develop something to live for. And what we're essentially doing is developing many religions that don't have God in them, and that's the rub again. Right, so we either receive a meaning extrinsically from outside of ourselves. Yeah. And if we won't do that for whatever reason, we will we will because we're human meaning machines, we will create one. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Human beings are religious creatures. I mean, religion not defined as most people would define it, but just we have to have a system of meaning. James Fowler, who's a developmental psychologist, wrote a seminal work on that, has a beautiful case for the fact that faith is not a religious thing, it's a human thing, that it's impossible to live without faith. Dallas Willard, a philosopher I love, used to say the same thing, that we, we, live, we live by faith whether we're Christians or atheists. All people live by faith, you know, and the simplest things, such a cheesy example, but I'm guessing that none of you are sitting here right now stressed out about how you're gonna get home tonight. 
Um, and that's because you have faith in some form of transportation to get you home, whether that's your car or Uber or the bus or you're going to walk, and you have faith that there's a reasonably good chance that you, if you have a car, it will start, that if there's a bus, it will run, that if there's a tram or whatever you call it here, I don't know, yeah. that it will show, is that the right word? Oh, yeah, oh, Trump. Yeah. Look at me, just contextual. Metro? We call it the streetcar, so that's oh, just, do you know? I was just on, that was with jet lag on the fly. <laughs> wow, I'm impressing myself, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, and we live with faith in this based on reasonable evidence and intellectual thought. We live as if something is true and we base our plans and our life and our future around that. And that's true of tiny little things like how we get home and it's true with major things like what is life about? What is good? What is evil? What is the good life? What will lead to life and flourishing? What will lead to death? Yeah. So on and so forth. And I suppose then if we expel God from whoever that God would be from the essential questions of human life and if we rebel against the idea that meaning can be received from outside we have a vacuum yes what do we fill what does the secular narrative the secular story fill that vacuum with typically yeah well I mean I think there are different answers based on different people at a society-wide level I think the main thing we go to is politics so Leslie Newbegin who's a great British theologian, thinker, pastor, writing in the 50s about just the beginning of secularism in the UK, said that as secularism progresses, people will turn to what he called the political religions. And, and again, I don't know your country well enough to comment on how true, in my country, that's 100% true. Mm -hmm. People are not Democrats or Republicans, they're worshipers of the right or the left. And when something doesn't go their way, you would think that the, the entire future, because again, if you're attempting to create utopia without God, then your best hope is politicians in your political system. And obviously, I care about the flourishing of our society. Anything happening politically in your country in the last few yeah, years? Yeah, just, no, just, just so. a few things in your country and in mine. But, but you notice there is a religious Touché. fervor. It's like the worst of fundamentalism. There is, a, there is a dogma. There is an orthodoxy that you cannot deviate from. You cannot question. You cannot doubt. There is an idealism. There is a hope. There is a sense of this doesn't work. We're doomed kind of thing, you know? That's all the religious impulse in human beings. And so we have essentially put our great hope for the human project and for society rather than on God and on his people onto the political religions. And they're failing us in your country and in mine. So I think at a society-wide level, the main thing we go to is politics. At a, at a human level, I think it depends a little bit on, per, definitely on personality, a little bit on class, like metropolitan and kind of middle class and that people often default to work yeah. as their religion of choice. Um, accomplishment, accumulation, identity in work and career, stuff like that, and kind of um, other socioeconomic backgrounds. We also just devolve to just alcohol and sex, kind of, you know, and that's true across the classes, I think. But often there is, if you can't find your meaning in work, which is really only the, the gift of privilege, only privileged people can even hope to kind of find an identity or meaning or purpose in a career. Most people are just trying to make rent by the end of the month. And so for both, I think a lot of times we just devolve to kind of the base desires for food, drink, sex, play, you know what I mean? Attempting to just kind of distract ourselves and numb ourselves as we move through life. And all of us, of course, are prey to that, like yeah. Christians are not. But, um, you know, it's scary to not be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, or it's scary to not be able to answer, ask or answer the big questions about life. You know, like when I'm most scared, it's because I'm most not thinking about 
sorry, it's jet lag talking, most not thinking. It's because I'm not thinking about the big questions, you know, not because I am. Right. And so let's, I mean, there's, there's a fair bit to chew on there. While, <laughs> while I watch Netflix, John Mark reads, apparently. <laughs> so. <laughs> so not watching Netflix, you're making babies. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're raising all the There is some truth made. in that. <laughs> for most people, I think Netflix is a great temptation. For you, you might want to spend a little bit more time. I need time. to stick the TV on. <laughs> Woo! It's hot in here, isn't it? Woo! <laughs> My wife's just in there. Just, uh... Good. Good. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. I love well, your children. Why don't we... Why don't Daddy. We... Let's... <laughs> Why do you never watch Netflix? <laughs> Moving on. What, um, let's sort of, sort of burrow down into this thing a little bit and ask, I, I guess, what, what are some of the, you know, we talked about meaning. What are some of the, the key symptoms or, or pursuits? I mean, we talked, yeah, we talked about meaning. You and I have had a conversation, really begins with, the concept of freedom. It seems like freedom is a really important yeah. part of this big story, at the moment particularly. Talk a bit about that and its significance, freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I forgive the American centricity, so I, sometimes I can read American ideas into your ideas, even though we have been set free from your oppression. Oh, come on. Um, but, come on. <laughs> um, no. no, there's no need for that. That was a low blow, wasn't it? No, we were glad to wave you on your way. Uh, Happy 4th of July, pretty soon here, everybody. Yeah. It's just Fourth a great day. As, as we call it, 4th of July, as we call it Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think both of our countries, and America in particular, but both of our countries, and really the entire democratic West, is, are built around kind of a culture-wide redefinition of freedom. So right or wrong, there's been a massive shift in what that word even means. You know, classical Greek thinkers, classical Christian philosophers, biblical theology define freedom basically as the ability to do the right thing. So free, the opposite of freedom was an oppressive force that was making you live in a way that was not good and true and beautiful whether that be Nazism or whatever the classic example is. But there's been a culture-wide redefinition of freedom as basically the ability to do whatever the hell you want and, um, to, and to not let anybody tell you what to do. You get to decide, define yourself, define your person, define your gender, define your meaning in life, define your religion, self-differentiate, define everything with nobody around you to tell you what to do as long as you don't harm anybody which is increasingly a problem because as long as you don't harm anybody requires a common agreed upon definition of harm. Yeah. And we're losing that we as our, our ethics are splitting. Yeah, so what's harm? You know what I mean? When an immigrant comes to the country from a Muslim background and has very particular ideas about modesty, um, what's pornography? To, is that harm to somebody, you know? So it sounds really nice to say as long as we don't harm anybody. The problem is we all disagree on ethics, which means we disagree on harm, yeah. and we're trying to live together in a loving way, you know? Across faith, across class, across ethnic backgrounds and national backgrounds. So all that to say, freedom has been re redefined as basically don't tell me what to do, let me do whatever I want, which ironically is what the New Testament calls slavery. 
And so what happens is we, we often are free from government involvement or tradition or religion or family or gender roles or whatever, much of which is really good, um, but then we end up in slavery to our own desire and we, it feels like freedom. I get to drink whatever I want, sleep with whoever I want, say whatever I want, live however I want, but it actually becomes slavery in about three seconds because then we, we act not because we want to or have chosen to, we believe it's the best way to flourish and thrive, but because we have to and we're now run by our desire. And it's called addiction, isn't it? That it's addiction, compulsion, exactly, to the definition. And the ironic thing is like, once you get down to a life that is dominated by desire, in particular, the desires, what the New Testament would call the flesh, which are our animalistic, primal, base desires for self-gratification, basically to do what feels good in the moment, regardless of what it does to me long-term or other people around me. Once you begin to default to those desires as the kind of true north of your life, people are remarkably the same across gender, across class, across ethnicity, across countries. We all basically have the same broken humanity that needs to be saved. So we're in this fascinating moment where in the past there were cultures that had not enough freedom and it was almost oppressive the way that God or church, not God, but church or religion or tradition or family or gender put these stifling roles on people. Now we're to the opposite end extreme where people have so much freedom um, that they feel lost and confused. And I think two of the primary fruits across our countries in the West are anxiety and isolation. Yeah. Because freedom is in, as we've redefined it, is in direct contradiction with both. So isolation, you can't have freedom as we've redefined it as the ability to do whatever I want and don't let anybody tell me differently and have deep relationship. Because any friendship, whether it's marriage or a best friend or a community or a church or a society, means you have to limit your freedom in order to do what's best for the group or for yeah. the relationship. So the more freedom we have, ironically, the more isolated we become. And you see this across our society. I mean, you guys are famous for appointing a loneliness minister, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, frankly, you're has. just, you're just, the government, uh, frankly, you're just ahead of the curve, yeah. you know, in, in a bad way. We're just thinking even of, of, the, of the, so congratulations the proportion of, on your loneliness. Of, but thank you, thank you. The proportion of even breakdown of marriages and key yes. relationships like that. And so much of it's around, don't tell me what to do. What, I mean, what do you hear? I mean, it's, it's interesting how things start out as radical ideas and then they become mainstream and then they become the norm. But one of the common refrains you hear from marriages that either don't work or aren't working or a divorce is, I just want somebody to love me exactly as I am. And, and when you actually press into that, what people often mean is, let me live however I want and don't try to change me and like me just as I am. Nobody who knows you or me or any of us will ever love you. And that's not what love is. Yeah. Love is to will the good of another ahead of your own at great cost to yourself and to choose as an act of a will to delight in their soul as an image bearer of God. It's not a decision to just say, you do you however you want, and I'm going to be cool with it and like it however. That's not love. That's, and no relationship works that way. And anybody who's in any kind of close friendship, marriage or not, will tell you that. You know, But that's just an example of how this kind of redefinition of freedom has crept in and is fracturing relationships. And you've spoken as well, and by when I say you've spoken, we had a chat five minutes before, didn't we? <laughs> about, you've talked about a crisis of community, which is manifested as well in isolation yeah. anxiety, but you also talked about a crisis of meaning. So to pick that thing that we started with, talk about the, the relationship of, of freedom and meaning and what's lost in, in terms of our discovery of meaning 
through this particular concept of freedom that we now have? Yeah, I mean, it's just what I said earlier, you know, for meaning with a capital N, meaning uh, a discovered meaning that is transcendent, that is truth, that is reality outside of yourself. It's true whether you believe it or not, whether you live, like something like gravity, you know what I mean? Whether I believe in gravity or not, it doesn't care, it is, <laughs> right? I will flourish or thrive based on how well I align myself to gravity. Yeah. Um, in the same way, God is real whether we believe in him or not. Jesus' vision of the good life is the vision of the good life, whether I align myself to that or not, whether I show up to it well, flourish and thrive or not, or whether I reject it and in the end I suffer harm from it. Um, that's my personal conviction, obviously, as a follower of Jesus, is to base my life around, I think Jesus knows better than me what is reality, what is the good life, what it means to be human being and who God is. But the tension there becomes when you want to self-differentiate and self-define and choose your own meaning in life, then you basically lose any sense of discovered meaning and you have to just kind of make up a life, you know? Which, unless if we're Aristotle, turns out to be a little hard for most <laughs> of us. And we need a coherent system of meaning by the time we're really about 13 years old. After that, if we don't have some kind of a coherent definition of who is God, what does it mean to be a human being, and what is the good life, it's really hard to flourish long term. Yeah. That's very profound. So I think that leads us into maybe addressing the, the question that at least was on the invitations, <laughs> which was, given all that we've said about the culture we're in, given all that we've said about the crisis of meaning, people's isolation, anxiety, given all we've said about the struggle to create and maintain healthy, lifelong relationship, what, what does, I was going to say Christianity, but that's, yes. not, that's the wrong well, starting point. You're welcome point. to. Well, it's yeah. the wrong starting point, given yeah. what you've said. What does the and, person... And I, just, I shy away from that. I mean, Christianity is not a word ever used by Jesus, mm. ever used by the writers in the New Testament. And I think in many people's minds... It means a system of religion that has grown up around the life and teachings of Jesus, much of which I agree with, but much of which has cultural trims and trappings to it that I think Jesus, you know, I read somebody the other day said Jesus wasn't a Christian, and then I read what he said, and I'm like, oh, you're right, he wasn't, by how often we define it today. Yeah. So then, what does the person, the man Jesus, have to say to some of these questions that we've been addressing tonight? I mean, even that is a key insight, that what he's offering is not a set of principles necessarily, but first, he is a person who has yeah. a way to offer before us. Yeah. Speak about that. I feel like that's at the heart of Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, obviously, Jesus, one of Jesus' most well-known... I feel like I'm turning to you and missing this whole side of the room. I'm so I sorry. I can see them. They're still there. They care. But, um, um, many are still You know, tracking. one of Jesus' most famous sayings was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I grew up in a, a religious kind of tradition that read that as a statement about the exclusivity of Christ and, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven when you die or whatever. And, and that may be what Jesus is saying, and that's a separate conversation and a separate debate that's very important. But I actually think what Jesus is saying there is that he's the way, meaning he is he's the way to be human, the way to live. His life is the template for what it means to be a human being. In Christian theology, when you look at Jesus, you see not only the perfect example of God, what God is like, you see that, but Jesus is the God-man in English language. You know, he's the incarnation. He's God and 
man, he's meaning people and humanity, he's divinity and humanity in the same place in some way that is mysterious and crazy and I still scratch my head at, but believed to be the center of all reality. And so when we look at Jesus, we see not just what God is like, but we see what a real true human being is like. We see what life was meant to be lived like in relationship with God, self, communities, and the earth, and the perfect flourishing of all four in interrelationship. And so when Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, I think the first thing he means there is just, I am the way. I'm not just the, I'm the way to God, but I'm the way to live, I'm the way to be human, I'm the way to get up in the morning. My way, you know, in way, obviously there's a play on words, is this Greek word hados, and it's literally the word for a road. And it means a, a way of life, a, a road, a path, a lifestyle. And, and then Jesus says, I'm, I'm the truth. And you know, I think the best kind of one sentence definition of truth is reality. And, you know, reality is, one philosopher I read said, reality is what you bump into when you're wrong, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like, if you, if you don't believe, say, I don't believe in gra gravity, I don't think it's reality, reality is what you run into when you walk off the roof, you know, a few seconds later, that's reality. It doesn't matter what your opinion is, it's just, it's reality, it's truth. It's, it's what is. And, and so, you know, truth is, is the reality of what it means to be human, of what kind of world are we living in, and what is human history, and where is this all going, and what is the future of the human story, and is there a future, and what does it look like, and how do we be a part of it both then and now? And then, of course, life is what we all crave. And um, Eugene Peterson, who was an American pastor who died recently, once wrote that it's the way of truth, it's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that brings about the life of Jesus. So I think in our culture, where we all, for the most part, want the same thing. Follower of Jesus, Buddhist, agnostic, Sikh, we basically all crave to live well, to live happy, but not just happy, to become pervaded by love, to be set free from our desires that we know are bent in the wrong direction, that so quickly become our addictions and our compulsions, whether they're socially acceptable or not. We want to be able to live in our short life and in our frail bodies with ease and gratitude and joy. We want to be present to the moment. I mean, most people want these things. And when people don't want them anymore, usually it's because over the years or the decades through pain or suffering, sin done by them or to them, they've become deformed to where they've given up those desires. But I still think that they're there under the surface. And so I think we all want life. And that's why I think Jesus matters more now than ever before, because in a in a globalized world where we're, most of us are just confused because there's a thousand different worldviews and ways and systems of meaning and beliefs and values and political ideas that are just swimming in our mind, especially if we actually get out of our echo chamber <laughs> on Twitter or our neighborhood or education bracket or whatever and actually explore the world as it actually is, not just the little siphon that many of us live on online. Man, it's, it's where a lot of us just feel really confused. And in this world of confusion, I think Jesus more than ever is just good news. He's way, he's truth, and he's life. And that's where, you know, uh, Jesus was remarkable in that he just didn't have a salesman bone in his body. He just like, no PR department for Jesus of Nazareth at all. Even the New Testament is full of like embarrassing stories about Jesus and his, not about Jesus, but about his followers and Jesus saying things that if I was writing the story of Jesus, I'd keep certain of his sayings out, <laughs> you know? And if I was writing about the early church, I wouldn't make one of the first story about two people lying and getting killed. And I, I, would, I would suppress most of what's in the New Testament even if I was 
the right is why I don't write Bible for a living. But um, <laughs> there's actually some other reasons for that too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but it's just remarkably open, and and I think that Jesus and the writers of the Bible would just say, put his way and his truth up against any other teacher, any other religion, any other system of meaning, any other philosophy or ideology, and just see which one leads you to life. And um, I'm just so confident that Jesus, uh, enough uh, confidence in my heart, not that I don't have doubts, we all do, um, but to base my entire life, there's so many other things I could do, so many other things I could be following, but to base my life around Jesus. And, And that's my deep conviction, is that we're all following somebody or something. Um, none of us are brilliant enough to make up life from scratch and think we know better than the thousands and billions of people that have come before us. So who, we, we have to follow somebody or something. The question is, who or what will we follow? And I just continue to find Jesus' way, Jesus' truth, more compelling as a pathway um, and reality map to life than any other teacher that I've come to yet. Not even Johnny Hughes, oh, as amazing gosh. as you are. Oh, very kind of you. Very kind of you. Wow. Though well, I think that's a great, great place to camp for uh, just a couple of minutes. But I, I, we do have, um, let's say, ten minutes or so, and I think it'd be great just to respond to that with any questions. There may have been questions stirred in the room, um, and we have uh, the wonderful George here was for- formerly this evening Trev, now wearing exactly the same outfit as Reverend George Trevor White. Um, beautiful vision and compelling, but there will be questions. Just raise your hand if you'd like to ask one. And we're going to do, Miles, we're do, I'm actually not going to say people's names because if I don't know someone's names, that's, but hello, sir. <laughs> you got a question. How do we as Christians get back to the idea of what the early church can be opposed to embracing the Christendom culture that in a lot of ways a rise of post-Christians rejected and that's what they rejected instead of who Jesus was. How can we like reimagine that of what Jesus imagines the church can be? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like the early church was amazing. You know, um, I mean, there were some amazing things about the early church, but when people idolize the early church, I'm like, you clearly have not read Corinthians. Um, I think it was just as messed up as we are, but just it was a lot smaller and didn't have any cultural influence or power. And um, the reality is, I mean, people forget, and that's not to downplay the early church. There was something radical and beautiful. And whenever whenever the Jesus movement is on the margins of society, and at that time, it was literally illegal in most of the Roman Empire, or dangerous, or it was punishable by death, or you were signing up to basically get you know, excommunicated by your family, for many people, depending on the context. Um, it does have a purifying effect. And so in that way, I'm really hopeful for the future. You know, I would assume your city is like mine. There's zero cultural Christianity in my city. All of the cultural pressure is away from Jesus. So if people are at church, um, it tends to be for the right reasons. Not everybody, but you have to be pretty serious about following Jesus to be a part of a church in my city. And I would imagine it would be the same here. And there's something that's really purifying about that. The great challenge when um, the church becomes the majority or if it ever gets into power is how do you not let it become compromised by culture and therefore, the, and then the witness is just ruined in a sense, you know? So I think the, the pursuit now as it's always been 
is just to follow Jesus, not a religion named after him, and to daily like set all of our stuff before him. And that's really the trick because we come to church messed up like everybody else in need of salvation and healing and rescue, but the expectations of culture are rightly raised on us. People expect us, if Jesus is back from the dead and we have the spirit of Jesus in us and we're not living radically different than our city, then something is not right. And as much as we don't like the pressure of that expectation, I think it is a legit, if I was a secular person, not a follower of Jesus, I would have that expectation of Christians. And I think that's a legitimate expectation. So I think the challenge, not in a legalistic way or a guilt and shame way, but it's just always to pursue Jesus in all things, you know? Another question? Do I hold the mic? Do you hold I'm so glad that you solved the mystery of what his name is, because I met him this morning as George, and then he was, was it Trev? Yeah, I was, I was just confused, and, and now I feel so enlightened. <laughs> Hi, good evening. So, um, I'm going to ask a question, like Johnny says, that drills down a little bit more, because I, I sense that there's like a real discomfort using this term Christianity, or, cr yeah, Christianity, um, because it it almost gives a picture of what was rather than what is hmm. and what's emerging. But I don't know, I can't hear something concrete or something to sort of hold on to, to define the church and, hmm. and the expression of Christ yes. as the church. I'm struggling to find that little, and that place. And I wondered if you're struggling to find that place or struggling to find that term. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Again, I'm not anti that term. It's just not one that I adopt because I think it has connotations for a lot of people that may or may not fully align with Jesus and his teachings in the New Testament. So I would just identify as a follower. I mean, I don't like if people say, are you a Christian? I don't say no. I say, no, I'm not. I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm punk rock or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't say that. Um, but when people ask me, I just identify as a follower of Jesus I say that I practice the way of Jesus and I'm a part of a community of Jesus or a church. So um, that's the language I go to. Maybe it's not helpful. Christianity is nice in that it's shorthand for a lot of things, um, but it's unhelpful. I mean, again, I don't, and this is the American, I'm sorry, I'm American. What can I say? Um, <laughs> but, you know, in my country, when you say you're a Christian, you know, basically what that means is you believe in some kind of a God, you have a basic kind of sort of Judeo-Christian ethic and you occasionally go to church, which might be once every five years or Christmas and Easter or whatever. It does not mean that you practice the way of Jesus. And more and more, it's beginning to have political con connotations, ethnic connotations. It means you're white and conservative for some people. So more and more, it's just not communicating uh, what Jesus had in mind. And, and again, it's not language used by Jesus. Christians only used two or three times in the New Testament, never by Christians. It's always as an insult that later became nominative, you know, language. But they identified as Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, family of God, and as disciples or apprentices of Jesus. Those are the two primary words all through the New Testament and early church history for what we are. We're followers of Jesus and we're family. And uh, I just, I like that language a lot. Come on. Some Netflix going on back there. <laughs> any, more, any more questions? Oh, One or two more? 
Oh, you, uh, oh that was convenient. Sorry. <laughs> there you are. Hi. Um, in, in an increasingly post, in a post-Christian culture, yeah. are there some really tangible ways that that's influenced either your personal or your church's way of reaching out to the community that doesn't know Jesus or maybe yeah. has a preconceived idea of what that would mean? Has that, has that tangibly changed the way you preach or the way you reach out or the way you live? Are there some real ways in which that's influenced how you're living the expression of your Christian life outside the walls of the church to mm. reach out to those outside? Yeah, I mean, just all the, I think just all the same stuff that you would intuit. It's about relationship, hospitality, conversation, less about events, you know? Most of the kind of event-based evangelism that comes to our mind when we think about a Billy Graham or whoever the British equivalent with that, of that would be was based in a culture, whether it's John Wesley or the, the Great Awakenings in your country or mine, was based in a Christian or Christianized culture where most, I mean, to hear a 40-minute presentation of the gospel and then call people down forward, those preachers and evangelists were assuming that most people already had faith in God, already had a basic Judeo-Christian worldview, already had somewhat of a faith in the Bible, and were just not living into what they were believing, what they believed to be true. So they were essentially evangelizing cultural Christians, you know? Now when you have somebody who, who th doesn't even believe that there is a God, doesn't believe in spirituality, thinks that we're evolved animals, thinks that there is no meaning, that everything's like, you're at such a radically different worldview. You have to start way, way, I mean, conversations begin with like, what does it mean to be human? And is there meaning in the universe? Or is this just all random coincidence and chance and glorious accident? And what is that? Like, conversations have to start way sooner, which means that these conversations take a lot longer for most of us. So I think we're back to early church. We're back to hospitality um, as a form of relational love. We're back to long conversations and we're back to living as an alternative society, a radical witness to a different way of life that is compelling. And that's the dream, the Peter line, like live such good lives among the pagans, that's not a derogatory term in the New Testament, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. So that's the dream, that we live such good lives among people that don't follow Jesus, like in relationship with, and creating space through hospitality that people begin to ask questions, you know? So I think it's so basic, but I think we're just back to the hard work of following Jesus and practicing hospitality and love. Um, I just wanted to ask, for people who are trying to um, kind of deviate from culture and to, and learning to kind of follow Jesus and not be a Christian, what are your pieces of advice for nailing what Jesus is actually saying as opposed to um, what is preached and has tones of culture and tones of like um, where you're from or or anything like that. How yeah. do you how do you navigate like all of that? Yeah, I love that you're even asking that question. So, what's your name? Uh, Daniel. Daniel, well done for that. Um, you know, I think first one of the things I've been thinking about that I need we need to do a better job of back home is just as people come to begin to follow Jesus or join our church, I need to do a better job explaining that we are a countercultural community. Um, you know, in the progressive narrative. Progressive meaning the like 
liberal secular narrative. Humanity is on this human project that's evolving toward utopia, and there's this progression from you know the past to the future that's from bad to good. And so often people view you where you are on that spectrum. Are you progressive, meaning are you moving toward the utopia? Are you conservative, meaning you're behind and you're resistant? And often, you know, followers of Jesus have to plot themselves in there, and whether it's around human sexuality or whatever, well, okay, you're not progressive, meaning you're not as smart and as lightened and as ahead of the curve as the rest of us are. And I think a better way to frame it is just to say we are a countercultural community. We're not ahead or behind on that. We're living a radical alternative to the majority of culture and society. And so I think it's just good to have that mindset. Like, I will not live like my friends and coworkers and neighbors who don't follow Jesus. I will live different at every level of my being, from sex to money to community to relationships to work, everything about me. I'm part of a counterculture. And then I think once we're inside that kind of rubric and worldview, this is going to sound so simple. I honestly think the most important thing is just slowing down to spend time hearing from Jesus. So I, I think the most important thing is to do less, not to do more, um, to, to break from the addiction of phone, Netflix, internet, most of which is filling our mind with stuff that is doing very little to no good, and to begin to sleep more, go to bed earlier, and rise in the morning to begin our time in the quiet, no phone, scriptures open, in prayer, hearing from God, speaking to God, and beginning to then try to take whether it doesn't work for everybody to begin to do this time in the morning. So whenever it works for you, but that's an ideal time to begin to try to stretch, slow down your whole life from that and live from that kind of pocket. So that might sound so simple, but I think the most important thing in your life is to make space for God. And it's also the most difficult thing. I find it's, it's pretty much harder than anything. But if I can get that one right, if I can slow myself down to anchor myself in awareness of and connection to God, it takes care of nine out of 10 of the things I'm dealing with. You know, it just solves so many other problems. That's a long way of saying, read your Bible and pray. And, <laughs> and don't be so busy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, thanks. Hopefully this relates to your last two uh, answers. So the, the, the question really is, in a sense, how new is this? So I, uh, when I read Romans 1 and it says uh, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship yeah. and serve created things rather than creator, I think that's, that's exactly the yes. culture I live in. Yes. So uh, the, the principles that are uh, the gospel in the rest of Romans, yep. you know, exactly apply to where we are. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Uh, so, yes. So, whoa, that was so weird. I, I mean, it, I, I think when we, when we say, oh, this is a, a new world and it's confusing and what on earth are we going to do about it? In, in a sense, yeah. it, it, there is a model there. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think the world we live in now is much closer to the world that Paul lived in than... Um, than the world that my grandparents lived in, 110%. Jet lag. I think we should. I think we should be done. I think jet lag is winning at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could not agree more. I think when we say new, we mean it's different than it was 50 years ago or 150 years ago. It's quite new. And when people just try to go doing business as usual, it tends to really not work well. But yeah, in that sense, I think. Um, 
there is something to the Eastern idea of a cyclical human nature. You know, human beings have not changed for all of our technology and science and medicine, where we live radically different than people did 50 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago. Human nature is remarkably similar, and I think the gospel, it's a long way of saying yes, I agree. We have one uh, time for one more. So if anyone's got one. Oh, whose hand went up first there? I think it was Jake. Thank you. Um, so in the current secular world that we've, we've mentioned so many times, I feel that the media portrays uh, Christianity as, you know, almost brushes it aside uh, because it's no longer seen as a minority or there isn't such a big uproar against it. Uh, my example for that being sort of the Sri Lanka attacks. If it was another culture, I feel that there would have been uh, a lot more focus on that. Yeah, very true. Uh, and because everything's driven by media now, in particular for the younger generation, uh, everything's, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it might be. Because there isn't the media focus, how, how do you see that we tackle that in terms of evangelizing to sort of the ages 16 and under uh, that haven't been brought up in a church in a Sunday school because this is so foreign to them and because it's not driven by media, how do we therefore tackle it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And again, I, I just have jet lag and definitely don't have all the answers when I don't have jet lag. But I mean, I think I just say the same thing to before. It's hospitality, it's long-term relationships, and it's a radically different life. You know, in that sense, my great hope is that, you know, to... To, I didn't catch your name, but to the gentleman's question here before, you know, I think some people have said that a similar time to where we're at now is potentially the fourth century, which was the fall of the Roman Empire as the barbarians came in from the north and what had been the zenith of human civilization, order, and the Roman Empire, for all of its flaws, did an amazing job of organizing society, at least if you were in the right tier of it. And then the barbarians came in and everything began to just fall to pieces, basically. And that's when the monastic movement began to r rise up. And um, Christianity, as it was called by then, began, was you know, by that time just barely legal and beginning to really make inroads in society. And one of the reasons that there's been so much corruption of church and state over the years is because society was such a mess that people had to look to the church and the monasteries for order because it was basically a lawless wild west. And that ended up causing problems as the church ended up having to police the neighborhood, so to speak, because the government had basically, it was basically a failed state in many parts of Europe and the world. All that to say, as there was that, and obviously we're not there, and people that might sound crazy as we're like barbarians, what are you talking about? We have flat whites and Audis, and it's, I mean, not all of you do, but some of you do. Working it's beautiful, it. whatever. But many have made the point that we're essentially wealthy, technocratic barbarians at this point, that everything is devolving down to the base level. It's chaos, it's the flesh, it's desire, even as we are upper middle class, many of us, and are educated and have our nice coffee and drive our nice cars and all of that. And I think when that happened, people began to look to the church as an alternative way of life in a, in a cultural moment of chaos, for order, for meaning in a world that had little to none, for purpose, for community, for love, for acceptance. And I think more and more, you know, um, secularism, I think, is just, I mean, forget that secularism is such a new idea. Human beings attempting to live as if there is no God, that actually is a new idea. That actually doesn't have historical precedent. And with every new idea, there's a honeymoon stage. 
And I think we're through the kind of idealistic honeymoon stage around secularism. Even if you look at how it was presented 10 years ago before a lot of this political chaos, there was way more like, we're free, and we're at Mark Sayers, my friend calls it the Paris Hilton moment. You know, like if you remember back to the, like her five seconds of fame, and it was just like, have sex with whoever you want, and be rich, and live in California, and have fun, and everything's great. And we're past that moment. Now you read the news and it's just anxiety and anger and chaos and hate and bigotry and there's just so much that's been exposed. And I think that's going to, I could be way off. I think that will actually get worse, not better. And I think in that moment, um, as Christianity is less and less the thing that we're reacting against and secularism becomes the thing that people begin reacting against, uh, which I think is gonna happen sooner rather than later, I think it's gonna be a beautiful moment for the church to just quietly, humbly, no bullhorn, no PR department, just be a community in Nottingham, trying to be in relationship in a city that's isolated, trying to be people of peace and anxiety, trying to be people of genuine love and hospitality and the tribalism and the anger, trying to be people of generosity and a culture, but just trying to live the very simple radical lifestyle of Jesus that's so countercultural. Man, I think that really beautiful things will come of that in the years to come. We certainly do worse than loving God and loving our neighbor, couldn't we? Yeah. That'd be a good start. So I want to just thank John Mark. It's such a joy to be with you guys. Uh, <laughs> for having me.